Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. I want you to imagine two churches in your mind. Now, these could be any two churches in any town in the United States, any city in America. And so here's the first church. The first church has solid doctrine. They're faithful to the Scriptures, and they're very proud of their confession of faith. Everyone in this church prides themselves on being straight as a gun barrel when it comes to theology. They're discerning. They're vigilant. They do not tolerate any type of false teaching in their church, but yet... They're stuffy. They're overly intellectual. They're prideful. They're academic. They're all truth without any love. They're puffed up. They're prideful. They think they have the corner on the truth and they are the purest church in town and no other church matches up to their standards of theology. And in reality, they tend to major on the minors They make mountains out of molehills. There's really no culture of humility. There's no culture of generosity. There's no culture of sacrificial love. You've probably met those people who are the theology police. They come across as jerks and overly critical, and they're judgmental, especially on secondary issues that don't really matter that much. So this church that we talk about, the first church, This church has succumbed to the dangers of legalism. Truth without love. Now let's think about the second church. The second church, doctrine for them is a dirty word. Who needs doctrine? Let's just love Jesus. And they're not very discerning when it comes to biblical truth. They're affirming of all different types of affirmative lifestyles, and they they pride themselves on being open, affirming, accepting, and there's really no moral absolutes. There's no talk of repentance. There's no talk of sin. They've compromised on key doctrines of the faith. They become like the culture around them, but man, are they loving. They're very loving. They're very welcoming. They're very accepting to the point where there's really no such thing as sin or gospel truth anymore. This second church has succumbed to the danger of liberalism. Both churches are sinful. The first church steeped in legalism. It's the church that's academically cold and snobby and puffed up and very looking down upon others and very critical. It's it's all truth with no love. The second church is all love with no truth. They've succumbed to liberalism. Anything goes in the name of love and tolerance. So let me ask you an important question. Are these two extremes the only choices we have as Christians 
or as churches? Are these the only two alternatives, liberalism or legalism? Can there be such a church or such a Christian that has a proper balance between sound doctrine and sincere love for God and others? Can you truly be loving and at the same time hold to biblical truth without any compromise? And the answer is yes. And Paul gives us the answer in the opening instructions to Timothy. So last week we began our series through 1 Timothy. And if you remember, Timothy's the young pastor in the church in Ephesus. He's been sent there to lead the church, pastor the church, and Paul gathers the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, and Paul gives a farewell sermon to these elders and says, listen guys, false doctrine is going to arise out of this church, this church in Ephesus. And as a matter of fact, false doctrine may even arise out of you as elders. Some of you are wolves in sheep's clothing, so be aware. So things have gotten bad at this church. There is false doctrine. There are false teachers. And so Timothy is the pastor, and Paul writes back to him to encourage him, to challenge him, to address this. And if you remember from last week, what did Timothy need before we even start? Grace, mercy, and peace. We need the sovereign love of our God to shower us with that assurance to know that he's sovereign, he's in control, he is our Savior. And so we come to the opening. Last week was just introduction. Now we get to the meat. No, I'm just joking. Last week we had a lot of stuff to talk about, but we're going to get to chapter 1, verse 3 through 7. So let's read this together if you have your Bibles open. As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now here's the main idea of this passage of Scripture. Here's the big, the big picture, the big, the big idea. It's this. Sound doctrine and sincere love should define our faith. Both. Sound doctrine and sincere love should define our faith. Now let me state it negatively. That's a positive way to say it. Let me state it negatively with giving you the opposites. Heresy and hypocrisy should not define our faith. What's the opposite of sound doctrine? It's heresy. That is false teaching. What's the opposite of a sincere love? That's hypocrisy or false living. False teaching, false living. Heresy or hypocrisy versus sound doctrine and sincere love. And so we need a balance of both of these. And so what Paul is going to address for Timothy is both the beliefs and the behavior of these 
divisive men in the church in Ephesus that were spreading this disease of heresy and hypocrisy. And they were about to destroy the church. So, so, so Paul's urgent here. There's an urgency to his tone. And a lot of Paul's letters, he, he kind of starts out with, you know, praise be to God, I thank you, I, I always remember you in my prayers. But here he doesn't do that. He just gets right to the point and says, Timothy, I'm going to charge you to get busy. You've got to address this situation. So from this passage of Scripture, I want us to see three parts or, or three aspects or, or three things from this passage of Scripture this morning. And the first thing we see is the charge. Paul gets down to business. I urge you. I charge you, Timothy. That word charge is a stern charge to command with authority. The word really comes from the, the, the military and in legal terms. It's as if Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to stand up like a commanding general and give orders to the troops. I want you to be like a judge standing up from the bench and dealing with this issue. I want you to deal with this issue. It's serious business. Because certain persons, Paul says here, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, who are these certain persons? You're not going to like it when your name shows up in the Bible as a heretic or a false teacher, okay? So there are some men whose names are listed here. So just go to verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20, Paul lists two of these men. He says, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Hymenaeus and Alexander. And then you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Three men. Hymenaeus, Alexander, Philetus. These men were problems. These men were spreading heresy. These men were teaching false doctrine. And Paul says to Timothy, you've got to charge these men. You've got to deal with these men. You've got to rebuke these men with, with urgency, with sternness. And what was the problem? What were they doing? Well, it says right there in verse 4, charge them not to teach any different doctrine. The word different there in the original language means different. So different, it's totally different. It's not even close to the true gospel. Paul had already mentioned this in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, 6-9. Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Totally different. Not even close. Not that there is any other one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But you... But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say it again, if anyone preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now here's the, the strength of which Paul says, if an angel with feathers walks through that door, I'm not saying angels have feathers, but let's just say an angel walks through that door, comes up to the pulpit and says, Pastor Sean, I'm an angel from heaven. I want to take over the pulpit. And that angel starts spewing false doctrine. What am I and what are we supposed to say to that angel? Paul says here, and I'll give you the French, go to hell. That's basically what he's saying. That's really what he says there. You are to be eternally condemned. So if somebody preaches a different doctrine, they are what's called anathema. They are condemned to hell. It is serious business what these men are doing. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.4, If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. They're teaching a different gospel. Which means there is a true gospel. There is the only gospel. There's the absolute truth. There is a body of doctrine that should not be twisted. It should not be watered down. It should not be amended. Jude 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is one definitive faith that has been delivered to us once and for all in the body of Scripture that is absolutely true and we have no right to twist it or mess with it. And it's serious business when somebody does do that. So much so that Paul calls them out by name. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, in verse 4, Paul gives kind of a definition of what these guys are doing. We don't know exactly all that they were doing, but in verse 4, they're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Devoting themselves. Really, in the original language, it means they were addicted to it. They were seduced by it. They were given over to these myths and and endless genealogies. Now, now what were these myths and endless genealogies, these extreme speculations, these false teachings? Probably what they were doing was they were going back to the Old Testament and taking those names, those lists of all those names, and they were coming up with fanciful interpretations about these people that weren't even true. As a matter of fact, you can go back to the book of Jubilees. It came out in around 125 B.C. And the book of Jubilees, which is not a, a, a canonical book, it takes those genealogies from the Old Testament and starts inventing all these stories about these Old Testament characters. So maybe they were into that. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for their, themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Weird stuff. There's always been a temptation in Christianity to go, quote-unquote, deeper into stuff that's speculative. Whether it's something that's extra-biblical like the Book of Mormon, whether it's something like the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, whether it's the Bible Code. You remember the Bible Code that came out many years ago? Where you could, or the Da Vinci Code? Or maybe even some weird end times teaching that somebody spends all this stuff just speculating and there's no basis of it in Scripture. These are distractions from the Gospel. They're nonsense. They're useless. They're vain. They're myths. They're endless and these guys are wandering in, into all this type of stuff, and they were leading people astray. And Paul's very specific as far as what they're doing. He says there, at the end of verse 4, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stewardship's a very important word there. It comes from the root word in the Greek language to mean foundation or household. Now, why is that important? I told you last week, 1 Timothy 3.15 is the thesis for the book of Timothy. So let's just look at 1 Timothy 3.15. What is the main point of this entire book? 
Verse 15 of chapter 3. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is the foundation of the truth. The church is God's household. What are these men doing to God's household? They're tearing it down. They're destroying its foundation. They're terrible stewards of God's people. And so the bottom line is, Paul says to Timothy, you've got to charge these men. You've got to get busy and you've urgently got to deal with the false teaching that these men are spreading. Because false doctrine is soul-destroying. It destroys people's souls because it leads people into deception. And so it must be met with urgency, a swiftness. And if we're going to be a healthy church family, a household of faith, if we're going to be good stewards of the gospel, then let me just say this very clearly. It is not only my responsibility to make sure we have sound doctrine. It is all of our responsibility. Now, I'm your leader. The elders are your leaders, and we're leading you into this. But you've got to be on the ball yourself. You've got to be discerning. You've got to be in your Bible. You, and let me just say this. With the proliferation of the Internet and social media, you are bombarded all day by stuff that is wacky, weird, and what's another W word? Somebody help me. Wacky, weird, and whimsical, whatever. Whack. Who cares? So the point is... You're bombarded every day by stuff that's, that's false. So we as a church and you as individual Christians need to hold to sound doctrine. Now here's the problem when we do that. You, you know this. If you hold to sound doctrine in this culture and as we as a church hold to sound doctrine in this culture, the, the flames are going to come at us. We are going to be labeled. We are going to be persecuted. All types of things will come at us saying that you're not tolerant, you're bigoted, you're hateful, you don't care, you're not loving, you're pharisaical, you're judgmental. And all those things are coming. And we've got to be ready for that. But let me just say this, it is a non-negotiable. Sound doctrine is non-negotiable. We've got to be a church that holds to sound doctrine if we want to glorify God and be in obedience to His truth. Now, that's the first thing, is the charge. Paul says, Timothy, get busy with these dudes. I'm naming names I'm not afraid to. These guys are causing problems. Second Timothy calls it gangrene. It's spreading like gangrene. It's infecting the church. Now, the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture is the aim. So, Timothy, here's what you need to do. And by extension, here's what we as Christians need to do. These false teachers, they're spreading lies. Timothy, as the pastor, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you as Christians to do. So what should the goal be? What's Paul's aim? What's the goal? Well, notice what he says there in verse 5. The aim of our charge. I like it when Paul just says it right out, out straight there. The aim of our charge is love. Love. Love is always first on the list. Now, Paul does not modify or clearly articulate or define love here but we can assume from the rest of the bible what love means it's a love for god and a love for neighbor that's the first and second greatest commandments matthew 22 37 through 39 
Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These men were not loving God, and they were not loving others. They were loving themselves. So, there's no love in these men. So, hear me very carefully. We need sound doctrine, non-negotiable. But in the same passage of Scripture, we need sincere love. That's also non-negotiable. The aim of our charge is love. A love for God and a love for others. And then Paul lists three attributes or three characteristics of what this love looks like. So how does this love manifest itself? How does this love show forth? Well, the first thing he says is from a pure heart. From a pure heart or a cleansed heart. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says there, still talking to the same pastor here, Timothy, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Proverbs 4, 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Your heart. Listen to this Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I cherished iniquity, that word cherished is almost like a mother that's, that's holding a child, like these moms that were up here that hold their child closely. Think about a picture of a mom or a dad holding that little baby closely. Now take that image and saying, instead of a baby, it's sin. You're holding it closely. You're protecting it. You're nursing it. That's the imagery here that Paul, uh, that, that psalmist says here. When you nourish and you cherish sin in your heart, it means that you're, you're not cherishing Christ in your heart. A clean heart a pure heart cherishes Christ. It seeks after Jesus. Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I think some translations say, Give me an undivided heart. But what's a divided heart? It's a heart that's going in all different directions as opposed to a united heart that's solely poured out to Christ. A clean heart a pure heart, an undivided heart. Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So how do you express love for God and love for others? It's a, it's a cleansed heart. Are you praying for a pure heart? Do you desire a pure heart? Are you going before the Lord and confessing your sins so that you can be cleansed of all unrighteousness? The second thing Paul says is, a good conscience. Now, what's the conscience? Is it Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder? No, what is the conscience? It is the internal knowledge in every single person, whether you're saved or not, that knows right from wrong. It's an inner awareness of knowing right from wrong, knowing your morality, knowing your integrity. It's, it's the ability to know right from wrong. And so Paul would say in Acts twenty four sixteen, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and men, a clear conscience, a good conscience. Now, what's the opposite of a good conscience or a clear conscience? A defiled conscience. 
a seared conscience, a hardened conscience. Now, what does that mean? Here's what happens when your conscience gets seared or defiled. It means this. You commit a sin, and at first you're bothered by it. You're shocked by it. And you confess quickly. But then you commit the sin again. And you're not so bothered by it. Then you commit the sin again. And then you commit the sin again. And pretty soon, it's a habit that you no longer even worry about. It's become a pattern of your life. You're no longer bothered by it in your conscience. Go to chapter 4 with me just for a moment. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, that's scary, through the sincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That word means as branded as with a hot iron. Your conscience has been so seared, it's been so branded, it's been so defiled, you're no longer bothered by sin. Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So the Bible talks about a defiled conscience. It talks about a seared conscience. It talks about a, a bad conscience. So here's the question. How do you develop a good conscience? How do you develop a good conscience? Well, I could spend a whole other sermon about that, but I'm not. Let me just kind of give you a couple of ideas here. Number one, it goes back to sound doctrine. You've got, to, you've got to be in the Bible. You've got to saturate yourself with the Scriptures. You've got to be in the Word of God because the Word of God informs your conscience. It, it, it tells you how you are to live your life and to understand truth. So be in the Word of God. But also you can pray for a clear conscience. Paul, I mean the writer of Hebrews tells us that in, in Hebrews thirteen eighteen, Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Pray for a clear conscience. Okay, so you've got a clean heart, a good conscience. What's third on the list there? A sincere faith. Literally in the original language, an unhypocritical. A faith without hypocrisy. Authentic. A non-deceptive faith. It's really, when you look at that word, the original language, it really means a faith that stands the test of time. A faith that's not fleeting. A faith that's not temporary. A faith that perseveres to the end. Now, obviously, faith is a gift that God gives us in our regeneration, and He sustains us with that. But it's true faith. Not hypocritical. Not putting on a mask. So, we need a healthy balance of both sound doctrine and sincere love. Now, I've mentioned this many times over the years, but let me just kind of talk about something here this morning. There are some people who I call our head people. Head people. I am one of them. A head person likes to read theology. They like books. They like to get into debates. They're very discerning. They like to talk theology. They, they like to fill their mind with reading. Uh, they're very focused on theology, and, and this happens a lot in Reformed churches that hold to the doctrines of grace. Sometimes we can be very heady and academic, and I tend to succumb to this tendency, but at the same time, you can be so heady that you kind of have a cold heart. You can kind of come off as a distant theological snob 
and it's all about the academic, it's all about the theology, it's all about filling my head with knowledge. So there are some of you that are head people. Now there are some of you that are heart people. Ah, let's not talk about theology, let's just love people. I want to counsel people, I want to love people, I want to be merciful. I'm really like into relationships, I'm more extroverted, I, I want to help people, I'm a heart person. Well, here's the danger for the heart person. You can kind of sometimes be not so discerning about biblical truth, and you can kind of become affirming and accepting of things that you shouldn't be because you, you want to be tolerant and you want to be loving. And so you can kind of be squishy on the gospel because you don't want to offend each other because you're connected to the heart. Head people, like, I'm the theology police, I'm going to sniff it out. I don't care about your heart. I care about your theology. Heart person, I don't really care about your theology much. I, let's just, I want to relate to you as a person on your heart and be accepting. Okay, so there's head people. There's heart people. There's hands people. I don't like theology. I don't like people. Just give me a job to do that I work with my hands. I want to go build a house. I want to go on a mission trip and like clear jungle land or, or do something. And so I like to work with my hands and do projects. But here's the truth. A healthy Christian needs a balance of all three. You need head heart, and hands. If you're too much of a head person, you can look down on somebody else and be a theological snob and have no love. If you're a heart person, you can be all heart and not very discerning and not very wise when it comes to biblical truth. And if you're a, if you're a hands person, you can kind of just go through the motions and be like, I just got to get it done. Ephesians 4.15, this was read to open up our worship service. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Do you know what one of the signs of a healthy, maturing Christian is? You speak the truth, but you do it in love. You have a balance of solid theology, sound theology, and sincere love. Now let's look at the third thing here. I don't know of any other way to call it than the swerve the swerve. Because that's the word Paul uses there. In verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. They've swerved. Now, let me illustrate to you what swerve means. The original language. Swerve means to shoot past the goal. Okay, when I was in fifth grade and started playing basketball, let's let you know, when I was in fifth grade, I was five foot five. At the end of my fifth grade, I was six foot one. I grew a lot and it was very uncoordinated. Okay, so think about uncoordinated Sean out there on the basketball court. Oh, they give me the pass. I get the ball and I shoot towards the basket. And guess what happens? It goes over the backboard. (laughs) Didn't even hit the backboard. Didn't even hit the rim. Wasn't even a brick. It hit nothing. That's what it means to swerve from the truth. They ain't hitting nothing. There's nothing that these guys are hitting. They're not even hitting the target. They're like so far off base. They're so into false doctrine. They're not even close. They've wandered. They've deviated. Proverbs says in Proverbs 4, 25 through 27, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right, right, or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. 
These guys have become intoxicated with false teaching. They're swerving, they're wandering, and they're in, in this vain discussion. Again, the, the stuff that doesn't really matter, stuff that's not biblical. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Empty words. Now here's the interesting thing about these men. These empty words. Verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law, without either understanding what they're saying, or the things about which they make confident assertions. Confident assertions. You know what that word means in the original language? They are dogmatic to the point that they will guarantee what they're saying is true. I guarantee it. I'm going to be so dogmatic in this heresy that I'm going to stand by this at all costs. So they preached a false doctrine with complete dogmatic arrogance, but yet they were clueless because Paul says they have really no idea what they're talking about. Now let me ask you a question. For these men, was the issue intellectual or was it moral and spiritual? It was moral and spiritual. They, 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 they could understand truth intellectually, but for them, it was a moral and spiritual ir- issue. So heresy and false teaching is the most unloving thing you can do to a person. When you move into liberalism and abandon the essentials of the faith, you're not helping anybody. Now, you're fooled into thinking, I'm going to help people. I'm going to love people. I'm going to love people. As you move into liberalism, I'm going to love people. I'm going to help people. It's the most loving thing I can do is to move over into these things. And actually, it's the most unloving thing you can do. Because think about this. There is a cruelty to heresy. Let me repeat that. There is a cruelty to heresy. Because what are you doing? You're saying to people, I don't love you enough to tell you the truth about Jesus being the only way and the reality of hell. I would rather let you stay in false teaching and go to hell, and that means I really don't love you. It's cruel to be heretical. It's the most unloving thing you can do. Phil Riken says this, In the end, every false theology is murderous to the soul. Teaching heresy is perhaps the most unloving thing a person can do. Is there any sin greater than the murder of a soul? Now, I wonder if the church in Ephesus learned these two truths. Because it's interesting in the book of Ephesus. You've got the book of Ephesians that was written to the, book, to the church in Ephesus. You've got Acts chapter 19 and 20 where Paul goes to Ephesus. You've got First and Second Timothy written to the pastor in Ephesus. But then you have the book of Revelation where Jesus writes to the seven churches and Revelation is first on the list. Jesus writes these words to this same church 50 years later. And let's see if they've learned their lesson. You guys ready? Revelation 2, 1 through 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Okay, amen, Ephesians. You've got the sound doctrine down. You're sniffing out heretics and dealing with them. Basically, Jesus says, you're not tolerating false teachers. You're you're, you're holding to the truth. You're solid in your theology. You guys are solid. 
you're straight, you're awesome, you're sound, and your theology. Jesus gives them a condemnation. But then look at the next verse. Verse 4. But I have this against you. That you've abandoned the love you had at first. Church in Ephesus, you're doing a great job on sound theology. But sincere love, you're not there. You're failing. So here's the point. We don't want to be a church that becomes so snobby, theologically astute, and straight as a gun barrel in doctrine that we've lost love. We need to be a people that deeply love Jesus and deeply love each other. And here's where we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if you do not have the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives, you're going to deviate into these two extremes. You're going to go into the ditch of legalism or you're going to go into the ditch of liberalism if you're not careful without the Holy Spirit. So we never want to be in the ditch of legalism. We don't want to be so prideful, so arrogant, so rigid on secondary issues and so snobby that we have no compassion or or generosity or gentleness or humility. We don't want to go into that ditch. At the same time, we don't want to go into the ditch of liberalism where there's compromising on everything and then everything goes and we're accepting of all things and we're not discerning and that basically there's no foundation for the truth. We don't want to fall into the heresy of hypocrisy. And we don't want to fall into liberalism or legalism. See, here's the problem. Liberal theology wants love without truth. And that's dangerous. Legalism wants theology without love, and that's equally as dangerous. So sound doctrine and sincere love should define our faith. We need both of these. We need both doctrinal unity and relational unity. We need to be on the same page doctrinally as a church, and we need to be on the same page relationally as a church and how we love one another. And this is not easy. I would venture to say it's going to get harder and harder as we move forward with the culture that goes against us. Because churches tend to navigate to one of two extremes. We've got to ask the Holy Spirit to give us that balance. We never want to compromise on the truth. But we never want to get to the point where we're, we're so stuffy and legalistic and we're not loving. So we need to ask the Lord to give us a heart for sound doctrine and we need to ask the Lord to give us a heart for sincere love and here's why I started with what I started with last week you and I cannot do this in our own power let me read to you what we read last week verse 1 and 2 Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope To Timothy, my true child in the faith, and this is what we need. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The only way we will have this balance successful between sound doctrine and sincere love is because we have grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. So we desperately need His grace. So I would ask us as a church family, would you 
individually and as a corporate family, would we be defined by sound doctrine and sincere love for the glory of God and for the good of others. We need Him desperately to do this in our lives, to be faithful to the truth. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we think about these two simultaneous truths we need to hold together, sound doctrine and sincere love. And would you just spend some time asking the Lord to search your heart and give you wisdom and and, and give you strength to be able to, to put these things into practice through His grace in your life. Thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to reflect upon these things. And, and Lord, it's, it's a hard balance that churches sometimes face. We never want to compromise on the truth. But Lord, we also want to be loving. We want to be sincere. We want to be genuine. We don't want to be hypocritical or legalistic. And so, Lord, we know that false doctrine tears up churches and is soul-destroying. It's a murder to a soul. But, Lord, we also know that when we're unloving and when we're unforgiving and when we're not gentle in displaying the fruit of the Spirit, that can also be destructive. So that's why we need grace, mercy, and peace to be able to navigate this balance because, Lord, it is, it is a difficult road to walk. So we need grace upon grace. And so, Lord, I'm just asking this morning that you'd give us grace to be able to be the, the individual Christians you've called us to be and also the church you've called us to be, that we would be defined by sound doctrine and sincere love for the glory of God and the good of others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.